my uh, privilege this morning to uh, share with you from God's Word. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Dale Young. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Parkside. And uh, anyway, it's kind of uh, interesting to uh, see how God works things out and orchestrates them because, uh, you know, I didn't know as I was preparing for this message that uh, there's going to be an emphasis on the Sunday school. So anyway, I want to share with you a uh, preface from one of the studies of the curriculum that we've been using in Sunday school, kind of give you an idea of you know, the importance of this to have your kids in, in Sunday school, to, to ground them in the Word of God. So uh, let's pray, and uh, then we'll get started here. Father, I just uh, thank you and praise you, Lord, for this time to come into your presence, to uh, lift up our songs of worship and praise, to, as we, as we sing those songs, Lord, to have uh, doctrinal truths, uh, spoken into our hearts and our lives and uh, the the truth that you are sovereign lord that you are in control and we praise you for that and lord we uh, just praise you that we're able to come here and to to hear your word proclaimed and uh, lord i just ask that you would bless the proclamation of your word lord that you would uh, bless me that i would be uh, a yielded vessel instrument in your hand Lord, that all would be done to point to you and for your honor and for your glory, that you would be high and lifted up before us. And Lord, I just uh, ask that you would be in our time now, that you would prepare your heart, prepare our hearts and prepare uh, that we would be receptive, Lord, to your leading, to your teaching, to your prompting. And that we would be submissive, Lord, that we would yield to, to you, that we would uh, go forth and not only be hearers of the word, Lord, but doers. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. Okay, well, like I said, since we've been uh, kind of an emphasis on Sunday school this morning, I'd like to share with you this preface um, and it's from My Purpose Will Stand, and it's a study on the providence of God uh, by Sally Michael. And anyway, she writes in here, she says, Over the years in, in our ministry together, my husband and I have seen professing Christian adults respond to the difficult storms of life, a miscarriage, a cancer diagnosis, physical affliction of their children in different ways. Some are unshakable rocks in the face of tremendous heartache, while others succumb to spiritual defeat even in the face of relatively small crises. In this latter group, some question the goodness of God. Others lash out in anger at God. Some even question the very existence of God. Inevitably, the culprit, that which causes them to falter spiritually, is poor theology. The cry of their hearts time and again is, How could a good God let this happen to me? They have no conception that an all-loving, gracious God could be acting in love when cancer strikes or a young child dies. There is no understanding that everything that happens to a child of God comes from his fatherly heart for love for his children. And he is not, comes from his fatherly heart of love for his children. He is not powerless to act. He is not asleep or ignorant of our plight, nor does he take pleasure in our suffering. 
God has promised, though, to carry us through the storms of life. He directs everything to serve his good purposes. He will, in, he will turn all things for our good, and he mourns with those who mourn. In his love, God has chosen his children, and he will carry them through to maturity in Christ. God leaves nothing to chance. He has so orchestrated the details of our life that his good work in us will be brought to completion. However, without theological underpinnings, faith often falters in hard times. This curriculum was born out of a desire to give children a solid theological foundation so that when the storms of life hit them, they will be prepared. If our children can understand that nothing is outside the control of the all-powerful, all-loving God of the universe and that all things he brings in their life is for their good, they may weather the storms of life filled with faith. So... You know, it's that importance of knowing the Bible, understanding the truths in it, and being able to speak doctrinal truths into your life uh, to help these young children coming up through the Sunday school program to know and understand God better. In other words, you, uh, the, know, the more you know God, you know, they did a study on the names of God and this study on the providence of God. It helps them to see who God is, you know, that He is. Uh, a true and mighty rock, you know, he is our refuge, that he will carry us through the storms of life. And, you know, the problem here that they refer to is, you know, a lack of theological understanding. You know, they don't know these doctrinal truths. A lot of the books I've been reading uh, lately here, uh, some uh, titled The Bookends of the Christian Faith uh, by Jerry Bridges, Bob Devington. There's Feelings in Faith by Brian Borgman, uh, Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, uh, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures uh, and by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. They all deal with the importance of theology or right doctrine, which help us weather the storms of life. So, you know, this morning... I would like to share with you some great spiritual insights from this book. It's called The Book Ends of the Faith by Jerry Bridges. And uh, this is what it looks like. It's Jerry Bridges and uh, Bob Bevington. And they deal with the theological truths, you know, doctrines that they call the bookends of the Christian life. And they are the righteousness of Christ and why we need to remember that in our daily lives and the power of the Holy Spirit, how the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to walk in our daily lives. And since Kim told me that I couldn't read the book, I'll be having to share the condensed version with you this morning. So <laughs> you can thank Kim for that. So with that, I'd like to read to you Psalm 43, verse 5. And it says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my continence and my God. You know, usually when uh, we see a person uh, speaking to themselves, we don't, <laughs> we think they might be a little crazy, don't we? But here we see that, you know, we are instructed to speak to ourselves. It says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? You know, hope in God. I shall again praise him. He's the help of my continence and my God. You know, we're to speak 
doctrinal truths into our lives. So the more we understand God, the more we understand his word and the truths therein, the more we are able to withstand the storms of life. And Isaiah verse 45, Isaiah chapter 45, I mean, verse 24, says, Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. So our righteousness comes from the Lord and our strength comes from the Lord. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, and that strength is the power of the Holy Spirit. So, how do we handle the storms of our life? Well, our life's activities uh, would include, and as they uh, refer it to here, our, our books of life, our church attendance, Bible study, daily quiet time, sharing uh, the gospel, serving others. And temporal activities would include our job performance, educational pursuits, recreational and leisure, grocery shopping, driving the car, laundry, mowing the grass, paying the bills, etc. You know, all these are the books of our life. And according to 1 Corinthians 10.31, we are to, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, you know, we're to do all to the glory of God. Well, we're doing that in our own strength. That can lead to frustration and guilt. And can set, you know, when we try to handle all these activities or the bookends, books of our life, uh, guilt sets in for what we should do but didn't, and guilt for what we do but shouldn't. Uh, guilt by itself rarely uh, motivates a person to change, and by itself it usually always discourages us. So guilt, but guilt rightly handled, though, is good for us. It's like pain. You know, pain tells us that something is wrong. It alerts us to do something to address the root cause. You know, leprosy is a disease that causes the loss of the sensation of pain. A person without a sense of guilt can continue on a destructive path of sin without even being aware of it. So the self-righteous Pharisees that Jesus opposed so vehemently, they're an example of this. The numbness to guilt was a prevalent condition of their heart. The resulting sense of self-righteousness is far more dangerous than a sense of guilt. Whereas the guilt-laden person, he is painfully aware of his situation. He struggles with sin, but sooner or later he fails again. They're told to try harder, but that doesn't work either. They lead a life of quiet and desperation. So the self-righteous Pharisee in his smugness and the guilt-laden person in his desperation have one thing in common. They do not have a proper understanding of God's provision for their lives. When we are united to Christ by faith, God provides for us the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Though they are provided by God, it is our responsibility to rely on them to support, stabilize, and secure everything we do in life. And that's how he pictures the righteousness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit as two bookends. You know, you have your books on a shelf, and without bookends, they fall. But you put the bookends of the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit up there, it helps to keep your life, the books of your life, stable. Well, the, dealing with the righteousness of Christ, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So, what is the righteousness of God and why do we do it? 
Well, the word righteous in the Bible basically means perfect obedience. A righteous person is one who always does what is right, who has always obeyed the universal moral law of God as revealed in the Bible and written on every man's heart. The moral will of God, the law of God, is the standard by which every person will be judged. The problem is, though, we are not righteous, are we? I mean, just go through the Ten Commandments. You know, you shall, uh, shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto yourself a graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You know, you go through those things, you know. And Christ even set the standard higher. He says, if you even have hatred, that's equated to murder. If you have, if you look at another person with lust, that's equated to adultery. So, you know, as Romans 3.10 says, says, none is righteous. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. And verse 12, no one does good, not even one. Well, we can say that, you know, are we that bad? We don't steal, we don't murder, we don't engage in sexual sin. We obey civil laws and treat each other pretty decently. So how can Paul say we're not righteous? Well, if we respond this way, it's because we fail to realize how impossibly high God's standard actually is. Uh, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responded, and it's in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. None have fulfilled these commandments. So, have we always, you know, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul? You know, if we've got a false idea of God, then we haven't loved Him. You know, if we use His name in vain, we haven't loved Him. If we create an image other than Him, even if it's in our heart, we're not loving Him. How about your neighbor? Have we loved your neighbor as yourself? You know, do you um, steal from them? Do you, you know, uh, lie about them? Do you cover the things? You know, there's numerous ways in which, you know, we can show that we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. All here is absolute. It means exactly what it says. Not most, but all. You know, if you got a 99% on a test, you think that's pretty good. But in God's standards, that's failing. Because God does not grade on a curve. So Galatians 3.10 puts us all under God's curse, but those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior will not experience that curse. Galatians 3.13, just a few verses down, 
says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So, we may not uh, do the scandalous sins, but what about pride, selfishness, impatience with others, critical spirit, etc., that we daily tolerate? Even in our best days, we still haven't loved God or our neighbor as we should. We have to agree that none is righteous, not even one. We know in our hearts that we need a Savior. So we put our trust in Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law. Though we believe we are saved, as far as our eternal destiny is concerned, we may not be sure about our day-to-day standings with God. We embrace a vague notion that God's approval is earned by our conduct. You know, we know we're saved by grace, but we believe God blesses us according to our level of personal obedience. God's favor is gauged by our performance. And then since we sin every day, you know, this approach is discouraging and devastating. You know, in Sunday school class uh, that Rick Beach was leading, called the gospel in life, you know, we're talking this morning about who is our neighbor and how we're to reach out and love to them. And, you know, the the basic thing was is whoever God puts in front of you, whatever person's in front of you that's in need, that's your neighbor. And a lot of times we, you know, limit that to the confines of our family or the the Christian body, but it's beyond that. You know, it's whoever God puts in front of you that's in need. You know, and that was a, a pretty convicting statement, you know. But... So, you know, if we are gauging God's favor based on our performance, you know, a lot of times we think, boy, today I don't deserve his blessing, do we? Well, you know, the righteousness of Christ, it changes all of that. And what is? So what is the righteousness of Christ and how will it give us a a sense of assurance in our day-to-day relationship with God? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter verse 22 also says he committed no sin. 1 John 3 5, in him there is no sin. And in Hebrews 4 15 says Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in John chapter 8, verse 44 to 46, Christ could even put the challenge to his enemies, you know, by saying, which one of you convicts me of sin? So we see here in these verses the sinlessness of Christ, his perfect obedience as a man living among us for 33 years. And the pinnacle of that obedience came when he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty we should have paid. By enduring the wrath of God, we should have endured. Jesus' obedience required him to give up his relationship with the Father so that we could have one instead. The thought of that, you know, just think about that. You know, uh, gave up his relationship with the Father so that we could have one instead. You know, as Rick shared in the Sunday school class, you know, he's born in a manger, placed in a feed trough. You know, he 
didn't have a home. He didn't, you know, he became poor. He became one of the, uh, one of those that was treated unjustly. And, you know, he gave up all that, became poor for our sakes. But the thought that caused him, you know, this separation of this relationship, uh, that thought caused him to sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, it's phys- you know, physical pain was nothing compared to the agony of being separated from the Father. Now, you think about that, what happened at the cross. You know, Christ being crucified, all our sin, all the sin of the world was placed on Christ. And God's justice and wrath was spent on Christ. You know, and that relationship that he had with God, that intimate relationship, was broken. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see his great love for us, you know, that he demonstrated that he was willing to suffer that, to bring us into a right relationship with him. So, you know, Jesus was the only human being who was truly righteous in every way. And the sacrifice that he made was so that our sin could be transferred to Christ. Back to Second Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin. You know, God, and uh, there's numerous other passages where it says, you know, he, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, that's First Peter two twenty four and Isaiah fifty three six. God the Father took our sin and charged it to God the Son in such a way that Christ was made to be sin for our sake. Galatians three thirteen says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for us because he had become sin for us. Christ did this in our place as our substitute. So, if you take a look at our moral ledger, which would record, say there was a ledger of your moral deeds, it records all your thoughts, your words, your actions, even your motives, all your good deeds, all your bad deeds. That's not a pretty picture, is it? And then you take Jesus' moral ledger, where he is perfectly obeyed in everything, and his, his ledger is perfectly righteous. Well, in Romans chapter 4, verse or, yeah, God took our sins and charged them to Christ, leaving us with a clean sheet. You know, He took all of our sins, placed them on Christ, and give His righteousness to us. So, Romans 4, verses 78 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In order for God to remain perfectly holy and just, he caused the Son to bear our sins. And everything that goes with them, our guilt, our condemnation, our punishment, that's what it took for God to wipe out our moral ledger seat. Perfectly clean and at the same time preserve his holiness and justice. The price had to be paid on our behalf. So the sentence was executed on our substitute, Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness 
has then credited it to us. Second Corinthians 5.21 again says, So that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So, we see that for our sake, in Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, and so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as God charged our sin to God, Christ, so he credits the perfect obedience to Jesus to all who trust in him. All who trust in Christ as Savior stand before God, not with a clean but empty ledger, but one filled with the very righteousness of Christ. This is what is called justification. You know, we are counted righteous before God. God counts us righteous because he has appointed Christ to be our representative and substitute. Therefore, as Christ is our representative and substitute, when Christ lived the perfect life, in God's sight, we lived the perfect life. When Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, we died on the cross. All that Christ did as our representative, we received the credit for, so that Christ may present us before the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. You know, there's a play on the word justified, and it's just as if I'd never sinned. You know, we've all heard that one and are very familiar with it. But there's another way of looking at it, just as if I'd always obeyed. You know, both of these are true. Because when God looks at us in union with Christ, he always sees us to be as righteous as Christ himself. So, these are some pretty basic Elementary things as you are a believer in Christ. But do we keep the present reality of our justification by faith in Christ and His perfect righteousness daily before us? Or do we just start to think that only happened at conversion and now God's approval or disapproval depends on our own performance, whether good or bad? You know, when we start to do this, our assurance that we stand before God as justified sinners inevitably fades. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So, we see here, you know, justified is is used three times, and it emphasizes that we're justified by our... We're, it emphasizes that we are justified not by our personal obedience to the law, but by faith in Christ. And faith involves a renunciation and a reliance. We're to renounce any trust in our performance as a basis for our acceptance before God. So, you know, we're to renounce our performance. We're to put our full trust and faith in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. But we begin to trust our performance when we think we've earned God's favor by our good works. And we can trust our performance also if we think we've lost God's acceptance by our bad works or by our sin. So, we need to place our reliance entirely on the perfect obedience and sin-bearing death of Christ 
as the sole basis for our standing before God on our best days as well as on our worst. Paul writing in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, he says, We have been justified, past tense, by faith. You know, we know justification is a past event. The moment we genuinely trusted in Christ, we were justified. We were declared righteous by God. But Paul also wrote in Galatians 2.20, says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And the context here of, of uh, Galatians chapter 2 is speaking of justification. So for Paul, justification was not only a past event, it was also a daily present reality. Every day of his life, by faith in Christ, Paul realized that he stood righteous in the sight of God because of the perfectly obedient life and death Christ provided for him. We must learn to live like the Apostle Paul, looking every day outside ourselves and Christ and seeing ourselves standing before God, clothed in his perfect righteousness. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves either more acceptable or less acceptable God, less acceptable to God. No matter how much we grow in our Christian lives, we are accepted for Christ's sake alone, apart from any consideration of our good or bad deeds. Knowing and reminding ourselves of this fact should bring the believer peace, joy, comfort, and gratitude. Because we have a natural tendency to look within ourselves for the basis of God's approval or disapproval, we must make a conscious daily effort to look outside ourselves to the righteousness of Christ than to stand in the present reality of our justification. So if we have that firmly in our mind, God's acceptance of me and his blessing on my life is based entirely on the righteousness of Christ, the question could be posed, so what difference might does it make how I live, or why should I make any effort at all? What motivates godly living? Well, the motivation is the motivation of the gospel. <clears throat> Let's look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verse 37 to 50. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves much. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we see here this sinful woman, and she's, you know, she's a prostitute. And she came to Christ. You know, she had a deep conviction of her sin. And she received from Christ the assurance that her sins were forgiven. And how did she respond? You know, she responded with love and gratitude. She displayed much love because she'd been forgiven so much. So if we're to have genuine growing love for Christ, well, that comes through an ever-growing consciousness of our own sinfulness and unworthiness, coupled with the assurance that our sins, however great, have been forgiven through his death on the cross. Only love that's founded on both of the foundations, of these foundations, increasing awareness of your sinfulness and the assurance of our sins that they've been forgiven, you know, can be authentic and permanent. If we find we lack love for the Savior, one or both of these prerequisites are deficient. You know, verse 47 there says, He who is forgiven little loves little. Um, you know, at a men's study, uh, we were discussing um, the works-based uh, religions that you come out of. And uh, anyway, my background was uh, Mormon. And there was constantly this uh, standard of works set before you that you could never arrived at, never arrive at. You know, it was constantly put out there, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to... You know, send letters to the missionaries. You gotta uh, do your temple works. You gotta do all these things, and you always felt like you could never measure up. And you know, if you're basing, you know, if you've come from that background, you realize your sin. Like this, this woman here, you know, she realized her sin, her sinfulness. And she loved much. You know, when they, when you come to Christ, you realize that he's perfectly obeyed in your place. You know, his righteousness is credit to you. So that when God looks at you, he sees Christ and his righteousness and his perfection. You know, it's a great relief to know that, you know, you are brought to a saving relationship because of Christ. Not your own works, not your own efforts. And, you know, you should respond in love you know for me it was like that's a great relief you know i don't have to you know do these you know try this on my own so you know here's uh, uh, a, a sinful woman well let's look at another one in uh, isaiah uh, chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 and and uh, here we see it's the the prophet isaiah And in a vision, 
It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other, another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So how did he respond when he was in the presence of God, his holiness revealed? He responded, you know, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, here he is, he's, a, he's part of the religious elite. And yet when he was brought suddenly into the presence of God's holiness, he saw his sin. And it was kind of like, you know, I've heard the the story of of uh, the lady dusting their tables and all the furniture, and then you open the the curtains and let the sun shine in, and you see all the dust that's still still left there. So, in light of God's holiness, Isaiah essentially placed himself on the same plane as the woman. He experienced deep conviction of sin. He experienced the assurance of God's gracious forgiveness when the seraphim brought the burning coal and touched his lips. And when God asked, Whom shall I send? Isaiah gave his life in service to God. He said, Here am I, send me. You know, see, here Isaiah, you know, he experienced that conviction of sin. He experienced God's forgiveness. And what was his reaction? It wasn't to... Uh, go and live as you please, it was to, here am I, send me. Be in God's service. Romans chapter 12, verses 1, which is our memory verse, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, all believers were to respond to God's great gift to us as sinners, with deep-seated gratitude and love in action. We need to daily remind ourselves of the gospel message to keep our lives from becoming a performance treadmill. As we see God's holiness and our sinfulness, it should motivate us to deal with sin in our life by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. So, are we guilty of self-righteousness? You know, Romans 10, verses 3 to 4, says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, if you were down on Main Street at the Cantaloupe Festival or anywhere and you're asking people, you know, if you died today and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would they say? Well, a lot of times you hear, well, I'm pretty good. You know, my good works out me. My bad works, uh, uh, yeah, every, you know, everyone sins, but we're only human, you know. But it says, I'm pretty good. You know, they're trusting in their relative goodness. Well, that's self-righteousness. But 
What happens uh, when we as believers come to God with an urgent prayer request? And God asks us, well, why should I answer your prayer? You know, what, how would we respond? You know, would you begin adding up your recent good deeds or then start to thinking about your bad deeds? Do we say, Lord, I've been serving you. I deserve this prayer request. Just as we depend on Christ's righteousness for salvation, so we also need to depend on Christ's righteousness for our answer to prayer. You know, we do that a lot, don't we? You know, we get in that situation where we think, you know, God, I've been going to church, I've been going to men's study, uh, you know, going to Sunday school, you know, hey, God, don't you, you owe me? Well, you know, everything we have, everything we get is because of God and his mercies and Christ's righteousness. You know, he is merciful to us. You know, we, let's uh, look at Luke chapter 18 and see there the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9, 9 through 14. He says, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, do we proclaim our righteousness, or do we say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? You know, if we base our daily relationship with God on our performance, you know, we are confident when we think we have earned his favor and deserve his le- uh, blessings. But then we catch ourselves falling to temptation and we are downcast and inwardly assume that the only way God is going to bless us is only when we straighten up. So we must always look outside ourselves to the righteousness of Christ alone to battle against self-righteousness, and persistent guilt. We need to focus on Christ. He's our mediator. He's our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. We need to focus on the glory of Christ and the gospel message. We need to see ourselves as desperately lost sinners. We need to see the righteousness of Christ as all-sufficient for us daily. We need, you know, Preach the gospel to yourself daily. And he's in this book, he's got a good example of it, and I'll share it with you quickly here. And he's talking about, you know, how we preach the gospel to ourselves. And it's basically speaking scriptural truths to ourselves. The first one is Luke eighteen thirteen, which we just read. It says, Every day, God be merciful to me, the sinner. On Sunday, you could read Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. 
But he was wounded for my transgressions of lying, cheating, pride, put in there whatever you want. He was crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace. And with his stripes I am healed. Like a sheep I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. And the Lord has laid on him my iniquity. Monday, you could use Micah chapter 7 verse 19. He will again have compassion on me. He will tread my iniquities of, fill in your sins, underfoot. You will cast all my sins into the depths of the sea. Tuesday, you could use Romans 4, verses 7 to 8. Blessed am I whose lawless deeds of are forgiven, of blank, of pride are forgiven, and my sins are covered. Blessed am I against whom the Lord will not count my sin. Wednesday, you could use Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for me as one who is in Christ Jesus. Thursday, Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And I, who was dead in my trespasses of, fill in the blank, haughtiness, pride, arrogance, uh, lying, and I, who was dead in my trespasses of, and the uncircumcision of my flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven me all my trespasses and canceling the record of my debt that stood against me with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friday, you could use Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions of, fill in the blank, from me. Saturday, you could use John I mean, uh, Isaiah 1.18. Though my sins of blank are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And then John 19.13 could be another one you use every day. Christ's work for me. Or John 19, verse 30, sorry. Christ's work for me is finished. So... Preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, see ourselves as desperately lost sinners. See the righteousness of Christ as the all-sufficient for us daily. Preach the gospel to yourself. Then you need to see and reject what he calls your functional saviors. You know, functional saviors, anything in your life that takes the place of God. You know, you could think, well, if I only had this job, then I would be happy. If I only had this home, then I'd be happy. If I only had this relationship with this person or that person, you know, uh, anything that can take the place of God in your life. So we need to see ourselves as sinners. We need to see the righteousness of Christ as all-sufficient to save us, and we are to respond in love. But we are in a battle against the world, the devil, and our own flesh. So where do we get the power and ability to live Christ-like lives? God provides the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us. So, just as we must look outside of ourselves to Christ's righteousness for our standing before God, we must also look outside of ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit for our strength to live in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. 
It says, I bow my knees before the Father, asking that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you, grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 also, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we see here, you know, that the power of the Holy Spirit is essential to our day-to-day sanctification. Through faith, we must renounce all confidence in our own power and then rely entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit work in the life of the, of the believer? Well, the Bible teaches that the Spirit applies His power to our lives in two different ways. The first way He applies His power in our lives is what He calls the synergistic work. And this refers to occasions that combine our effort with His enabling power. So this refers to situations where we work in conjunction with the Lord. But this isn't uh, pure synergism as if we and the Spirit each contributed equal parts to the task. Rather, we work as He enables us. So we use the expression, he uses the expression in his book, qualified synergism. So the Holy Spirit supplies the enabling power, and we do all the tangible work or the visible work that you see. Where in Romans 8, verse, Romans 8, verse 13, we see an example of this. It says, we're to put to death the deeds of the body, the sin that remains in us, yet we do so by the Spirit. Okay? Uh, also, 1 Peter 4, 10-11, we're to use the spiritual gifts we've received to serve God and other people, yet we do so by the strength that God supplies. That's 1 Peter 4, 10-11, if I didn't give that one. And then Philippians 2, 13 Probably one of the clearest examples here. It says, work, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here Paul refers to work three times. You know, we are to work. We're to apply ourselves with the utmost seriousness and vigilance. But we... We're to do so with the recognition that God provides us with both the motivation, because he calls it, you know, both to will. is God who works in you both to will, so he's providing the motivation and the power, the work, to obey. He says, uh, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, you know, we're to work, but it's also God's enabling Holy Spirit that works in us. So, the second way the Spirit applies this part of our lives is His monogistic work, in which, you know, and this refers to the work that He alone does in us and for us, but, and it's completely independent from us. The monogistic work of the Holy Spirit begins when He gives us new life by causing us to be born again. You see that in John chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, and Titus 3, verses 5 to 6. 
It says, you know, this is a mysterious process, and it's one we cannot understand or control. And if you look at John uh, 3, verse 8, Christ speaking to Nicodemus, Christ said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, we see here that, you know, this is a work um, that the Holy Spirit does alone. And through the new birth, the Spirit gives us the gifts of repentance and faith. Acts 11.8 says, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to the faith, or leads to life. So here we see the Holy Spirit grants the gift of repentance. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So, you know, sometimes we're conscious of the the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes not. But either way, we can be confident that throughout our lives, He's always at work to accomplish God's purpose, both monergistically and synergistically. So, and in Hebrews 13, 20, verses 21, kind of gives an example of how these work together. It says, Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. You know, the first part here is that God will equip us with everything good we need to do His will. This is his synergistic work. Do we need understanding of God's will? He will supply it. Do we need power to perform it? He'll provide it. Do we need providential circumstances, materials, people, or other resources? He equips us. But the writer's second request here is that God will work in us whatever is pleasing in his sight. This is his monergistic work. He performs it without our effort and sometimes in spite of our effort. So, there's three important similarities that we need to see between the righteousness, of Christ, the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Both are infinitely solid and weighty because they're provided by God Almighty. Both require faith, which includes a renunciation of our own resources and a reliance or dependence on God's. And both are blood bought life-chasing fountains of grace, blessings beyond measure, such that he gets all the glory. You see, as we see that we only have our standing in God's presence because of the righteousness of Christ, we're only able to do things because of the Holy Spirit enabling us, then who gets the glory? God. You know, we don't get the glory. You know, we are to be his good and faithful servants. But there's some differences to note also. The righteousness of Christ work, uh, represents his work for us and outside of us. It is totally finished and complete. We can never become more righteous or less righteous in our standing before God. Once we are clothed with the perfect, completed righteousness of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit represents his work not only for us but in us. This work, whether monergistic or synergistic, is always a process and it will never be finished in this life. In other words, 
you know, the righteousness of Christ, God looks at us, sees us perfectly righteous. But that process, which we call sanctification, daily dying to self, daily becoming more Christ-like, you know, that's an ongoing process in life. And it, it won't end until we're in God's presence. So, our response to the righteousness of Christ, His perfect obedience, His work for us is always passive. Our part is simply to receive it. The same is true with the monergistic work of the Spirit, but the synergistic work of the Holy Spirit requires an active response. As the Holy Spirit enables us, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So, as we learn, you know, to speak truths in our lives, Psalm 43, verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? You know, speak these truths in your lives. You know, even on, on our best days, we're not good enough to merit God's favor. And on our worst days, we're not bad enough to be beyond His grace. See? And, you know, just, you know, so we know that the biblical truths of the Bible can speak or when we know the biblical truths of the Bible and can speak them to our soul, we will hope in God. We will praise Him for being our righteousness and our strength. We will be able to better withstand the storms of life. I'd like to close here with an um, excerpt of a letter. It's uh, from a book that Brian Borgman wrote called Faith and Feelings. And he's a pastor of Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. And some of you have probably heard him on Pilgrim before. But a group of his ladies, a group of the ladies in his church, wanted to get together and study theology. And, uh, you know, he said, well, they agreed it was a good idea, and we can't say everyone's a theology, a theologian. We're either just a good one or bad ones, and then quench the people's desire to be better theologians. So they uh, settled on Wayne Gruden's uh, systematic theology. And for three years, you know, they studied this. And uh, one of the women says, one of the women wrote to me after they finished their first semester of study. Here is an excerpt from her letter which illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Studying theology has brought me incredible joy. Knowing God better and spending more time in His presence and beholding His beauty and glory make me happy and content in a way I have not known before. Studying systematic theology is gradually bringing together into one coherent whole all the strands of teaching and Bible reading of 30-plus years. Everything is making more sense, both biblical, biblically and in life. Hearing the doctrine of God preached has made me mentally and emotionally healthier. I rarely suffer from depression now like I used to. A deep joy in the Lord is mine. So, you know... Touched upon two uh, important doctrines, the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, and as you, you know, rest in that. But, you know, what's interesting here is the, you know, this lady for 30 plus years and things didn't make sense. You know, and it's important that we know the Word of God, that we take its truths and apply it to our lives because, you know, becoming a Christian is not uh, a walk in the rose garden. You know, you're going to have trials and tribulations in your life. And uh, so it's, you know, 
we need to take that time to really be familiar with our Scripture so that when those trials in life come, we can go through them. We'd be solid as a rock because what are we doing? We're resting in Christ, His righteousness, His perfection, His perfect obedience. And we're relying on on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's kind of like... it was just the thought came to the uh, uh, this morning um, when I went through high school. Uh, English was my least favorite subject, so I'd always study just enough to get the the passing grade, and uh, got through it with no problems. And then I went to college, and uh, my first paper I got back was blood red. And had a big F on it. And <laughs> I thought, you know, I better take the time to get to know this stuff so I can get the grade. And so as we take the time to get to know God and His Word, you know, it'll enable us to go through the trials of life so much easier. And, uh, you know, I hope you families uh, realize and understand the importance of having your children in Sunday school. You adults, the importance of coming to the adult Sunday school class. I mean, this uh, study that uh, Rick's been doing, the, the gospel in life, you know, a lot of it's very, very convicting. And, uh, you know, we can get that sense of, well, we got to do more, do more, do more to, to get uh, gain God's approval. Well, yes, we should do that, but it should come from love for Christ and a reliance on His power. Because when we when things deteriorate into a list of do's and don'ts, you know, we get burned out because we're doing it in our own strength. So we gotta always remember our perfection, our standing with God is because of the righteousness of Christ alone and the power to live for him, to love him, and that comes through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So let's close. Father, we just uh, uh, thank you for this time, and, and uh, as we come to a close, Lord, we uh, I acknowledge, Lord, that I am uh, not uh, worthy. That uh, all that you bless me with is not because I deserve it or uh, merit it in any way, but it's only because of Christ and His sacrifice, His perfect obedience, and because of Your mercies, Lord. And Lord, let that help us. Uh, yeah, what the righteousness of Christ means and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let that instill in us that same desire that was in Isaiah, Lord. Here am I, send me. Lord, bless that we uh, at Parkside here would go out into our community, that we would be that bright shining light into the dying, into the light, dying world, oh, Lord, that they would see Christ in us, that they... Um, would see his love for them in us and uh, his desire for them to to repent. Lord, that we would look at them as what they are. They're created in your image. And that we would see them as having the, the potential, Lord, through faith and repentance to return to that right relationship with you. And we ask these things and say this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.